0: Good morning let 's try that again. good morning okay that's that's better thank you okay there here it comes hey, um, thanks guys. I said this in the, the the first service. I said it last night too at uh, at saturday night service and and I know that they they don 't want me to or they wouldn't want me to, but I just want to say. These last few weeks, uh, the worship team has been unleashed and what they have done in the service and the way they have just led us in worship, I think that we should thank them for that because um, it's just been so, so good. And, and really what I just wanna say about that is They have just surrendered themselves to the Holy Spirit in this season that we're in. They are just desperate for God and for his spirit. And so what I see is just the spirit filling them up and then he is just flowing out of him or out of them in this time of worship. So I'm so, so grateful and so thankful for them. Hey, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are joining us online, we are so glad that you have decided to hang out with us wherever you are this morning in the room. We're so glad to have you here as well. If you're a guest in the room or online, we feel a sense of honor. We are really glad that you are here. You could be anywhere on a Sunday morning, especially a sunny Sunday morning like this, but you've chosen to be here. And so we are incredibly grateful for that. Also, we just want to mention that if you are a guest or you're visiting or new to the church for the last few weeks, we've been talking just about some church business and family family business, and so I might allude to that throughout the message a couple of times, so just want to kind of give you a tip on that, but before I get to the message, if you will let me take maybe just three or four minutes just to share a couple of personal thoughts on behalf of myself and on behalf of the staff. For these last few weeks, um, you know, we're in kind of a, a, a... period of transition, and um, a lot of you have come to, to me or to the staff, and have really just said a couple of things. One, you've all just said, hey, how are you doing? And then the other thing is you've all really just thanked us. I hear that a lot. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for all the extra stuff that maybe you are picking up. And I just wanna respond to those for just a minute this morning. So so to the question, how are you doing and how is the staff doing? We're actually doing really well, um, all things considered. Um, I have been so encouraged to watch this staff rally around each other and love each other and pray for each other and encourage each other. Um, Every Tuesday, we have staff chapel. So we gather together, lots of prayer. Somebody on staff will share a devotional thought. The last two weeks of Staff Chapel have been the richest they've been in a long time. And I think it's because we sense just a desperation for the Holy Spirit. So thank you for asking, we're we're doing well. The other thing is, a lot of you have said thank you. Thank you for all that you're doing. And I appreciate that and the staff appreciates that so very much, some of you have dropped off like baskets full of sugar and goodies. And uh, on Fat Tuesday, there were potchkies or I don't know how you say those. Donuts I can't eat, so, I'm, I'm, so that was very, uh, we're very grateful for that. But here's the deal, gang. I, wa- I want to take a minute to say thank you to you, actually. On behalf of the staff, we want to thank you for the ways that you have and are encouraging us, for the ways that you have and you are praying for us. We can't express enough our gratitude to you as a church for the ways that you're loving us in this um, period of transition right now. And I just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, when we kind of shared some big news, I watched something really amazing happen, and it was heavy for all of us, but at the same time, at the end of those services, I was sitting in the front row over here, I watched as this church, first service and second service, came forward and got on their knees and prayed and cried and confessed and surrendered and whatever it was that you were doing in that moment, and we have this word revival back here on the wall. You can't... You can't see it very well today because of the cross. What I saw starting to take place was that very thing right there. God renewing and bringing revival to this church. And, and listen, here's what I know about revival. I know that in order for revival, like real revival to happen, we have to get over ourselves and get under God. And that's what I saw a couple of weeks ago. In 1 Peter chapter five, Peter just writes that when we humble ourselves underneath the mighty right hand of God, he will in due time exalt us Or lift us up so i want to encourage all of us but i want to encourage you church i've I've used this phrase with the staff several times don't lose your desperation for the holy spirit in this moment don't lose your desperation for god and for what he wants to do and for and for him the holy spirit to move in our midst Uh, we like to use the phrase you know the holy spirit is pouring himself out onto us Can I just say this, gang? That the cup of the Spirit never empties and it never runs dry. And he wants to just keep pouring out his goodness and his love and his grace and his restoration on our church. So thank you, thank you, thank you on behalf of the staff just for everything and the ways that you are are loving us. We so appreciate it. With that said, Jesus is. We started this new series last week And as Chris and I were sort of batting around the idea about what are we gonna talk about during this season that we're in, you know, we threw a couple of ideas around. But finally, I just said to Chris, I said, listen, here's here's what my heart says to me, and here's what I know that I need for myself. In moments like this, I need to point my heart and my thoughts towards the person of Jesus Christ. And the phrase that kept rolling around in my head was, everything that Jesus is, is everything we need as a church right now. Everything that Jesus is, is everything that I need as a husband, as a pastor, as a leader, as a friend, as a father. Everything that Jesus is, is what we need right now. So that's the series that we're in, Jesus Is. Last week, uh, Chris talked about Jesus' hope. This week, I get to talk about justice. And before we get to that, I want to give just a couple of disclaimers about this the sermon this morning. The first is that um, justice is a huge, huge topic. It is way too big for us to cover in the next 25 to 30 minutes. It's not possible. And in fact, my guess is if I were to ask you, like when you hear the word justice, what do you think? Or what's your opinion? Or what's, what's the justice issue that's most important to you? We'd get a dozen or more different opinions about justice. So it's simply too big for us to really dig into and, and, and explore all of it. So what we're gonna do is look at a story through the lens of justice, and ask God what he wants to teach us in that story about justice. The other disclaimer is that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stories about justice in the Bible. It's a main theme in the story of God. The story that I've picked today is just one of those possible stories. And I picked this story today strictly and only for who Jesus is in the story, what he says, and what he does. That's why we picked this story today. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at this story in a few minutes. I wanna lay a little bit of groundwork for us, though, before we get to the story. Now, I've mentioned that Chris and I, we were sitting in my office a couple of weeks ago, trying to decide what it is we were gonna talk about. And so we wrote, Jesus is, and then Jesus is hope, and Jesus is healing, and he's love, and he's forgiveness, and he's transformation, and he's redemption. And then there was justice. And most of those words on there were really easy for us to kind of go, okay, I'll take transformation and I'll talk about redemption and Chris said, I'll take healing and I'll take hope and we'll ask Chandler if he wants to talk about this and we'll ask Josh if he wants to talk about this and then Chris and I got to the word justice and we both just looked at each other and said, nope, I ain't talking about that, no thank you. In part because it's too big of a topic, but in part because it is a charged word. Like it is a politically, culturally, and socially charged word. There's a lot of emotion that comes with this word in our culture and in our society when you hear the word justice. But here's the the deal, gang. Not only is it a culturally or politically charged word, it is a biblically charged word as well. I, I think I mentioned it already. It's all over scriptures. From beginning to end, it is a main theme. The word is used, justice, is used 400 plus times Old Testament and New Testament. So it's written all over the scriptures. In fact, um, so what I want to do is I want to put a definition of the word justice up on the screen for us, a very, very simple definition, um, just so we kind of have that in our brains as we're going through this. Justice is something that is guided by truth, reason, or fairness. Justice is something that is guided by truth reason, or fairness. Now the first time we run into that word in the Bible is in the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew word, and it's the word mishpat, okay? Mishpat, and that word just means justice. Now here's what's interesting about that word. When you see it in the Bible, it's used in two different ways. The first way that it is used is in the, what we would say, the retributive sense. So when you hear retributive, think retribution or recompense. So if I were a CEO of a company and I embezzled millions of dollars um, and I was caught, you would find me in a court of law where there would be retribution or recompense. I would have to pay back the money and or go to jail or prison. That's what retributive justice looks like. So that's used multiple times in the story of God. The other way that this word mishpat is used, justice, is in the restorative sense. There's something called restorative justice. And throughout the Bible, we see God restoring communities. We we see God restoring lives and people and futures. And so there's this sense of restorative justice. Now, here's my guess, only because I know this is very, very true of me as a person. When you hear the word justice, given the, the political, cultural, societal climate that we live in today, do you when you hear that word, do you think more of retributive justice or restorative justice? You don't, you don't have to answer that. But I know for me, just because of the, the world we live in, that I have a tendency to go towards the retributive side of things. Retribution, recompense, um, the, retributive, the retributive side of justice. Of those 400 times, 400 plus times, that that word is used, nine out of 10 times in the Bible, It's restorative justice. Nine out of 10 times, God, when he talks about justice, he talks about bringing restoration to people, to a community, to a group of people, to relationships. It's all about restoration, and that's where we're gonna head today. Now, I've used the word justice, but the opposite of that is injustice, right? And when you and I see an injustice in the world, isn't it true that something inside of you says, that's wrong and something should be done about it. Whenever you see an injustice, a racial injustice, a social injustice, a a political injustice, whatever that would be for you, there is something inside of all of us that when we see that injustice, we just sort of wake up on the inside and go, that's wrong and something should be done about it. And my question as we get started this morning is what is that? What is that thing inside of us that calls out to unjust or unjust moments in life? And I think it's a two-part answer for us. I think the first part comes from the book of Genesis, chapter one, verse 27. Here's what the author writes. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And essentially what that tells us is that every single human being, because we believe that we are created in the image of a loving, good, and holy God, every single human being, no matter race, ethnicity, color, sex, doesn't matter, has innate value. We all have value, period, end of sentence. So that's the first part of this thing that's inside of us. The second, though, comes from the book of Psalms. This so Psalms chapter 89, verse 14. Here's what the psalmist says, and he's, he's describing God in this, in this verse. He says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Everything that God is is based on righteousness and justice. And who sits on a throne? The king, the ruler, the highest of high that makes the decrees, that has authority over everything and everyone. And what the psalmist is telling us is that God is mo- motivated solely by righteousness and justice. Every decision he makes in the world is somehow motivated and influenced by the foundations of righteousness and justice. Now take these two verses and put them together. This is why we react the way we do to injustice. Because if we are created in the image of this God, what that means is that holiness and righteousness are imprinted on our souls. It's imprinted on who we are as people. So when we see something that isn't right, the image of God responds. So when you see or hear the story of child abuse, an innocent child being abused, you think that's wrong. That's righteousness calling out of you. And you say something has to be done about it. That's justice calling out of you. When you read stories of an oppressive government waging war against its own people or even genocide, you don't have to know anything about those people. You don't have to know anything about their culture at all. But you say to yourself, that's wrong. That's righteousness calling out something has to be done, that's justice. That's the image of justice on you. When a CEO or a politician or someone in power uses their power over people, and you hear the story and the fallout from it, you say, that's wrong, it's righteousness in you. And something has to be done about it. That's justice inside of you. So then we come to this moment in the life of our church, the season that we find ourselves in the life of our church. And over the last several weeks, one of the things I've heard is the word justice. I've also heard the word injustice, right? I mean, Chris was here last week, and he talked about the fact that we are all, we're all filtering this moment in the life of our church through our own lens, through our own life experience, and that's, and that's right, and sometimes it's quite healthy. But we come to this moment, and, and we ask this question, are, is justice taking place, or is injustice taking place? And there's opinions on both sides of the issue, and we know that. And so here's what I wanna do this morning as we find ourselves in this place as a church. I wanna peek into this story, this moment with Jesus. And, and I, I would never pretend to try to tell you how you should respond to an injustice in the world. But what I do wanna do through this story and my hope and my prayer is that our hearts will be postured in the right place and our mind will be framed, our thoughts and our, fresh, our thoughts will be framed around the person of Jesus Christ. I want our hearts to be postured in the right place and our thoughts to be framed in the right way around the person of Jesus Christ so as we have this conversation or you have your own conversations outside of these walls about brokenness or injustice that you see in the world that you live in, that it is Jesus Christ in us who is influencing us as we interact with the injustices we see in the world. That's my hope for us this morning. So, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to go to John chapter 8. We'll put it up on the screen for you. This is a really famous story. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll probably know this one. If you're new to the Bible, haven't heard this story, it's one of the most powerful stories in the Scriptures. And remember, it is all about Jesus in this moment. So this is John chapter 8. We'll start right at verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Because this is what Jesus does. He goes from village to village, town to town, teaching people about who God is and how the kingdom of God is now at hand. So he sat down and he taught them, verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman Pharisees were the teachers of the Old Testament law. These were the people that took all of the Mosaic or the Levitical laws and helped the people know how they were supposed to live by those laws and how to apply those laws to their life. That's what the Pharisees do. So the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and they placed her in the middle of this group that Jesus is teaching. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, I have a question. Where's the guy? Right? Where's the guy in this moment? And that, so that little piece of information should tip us off that something's not right in this story. Something's not right in the fact that they're only bringing the woman. Because the Levitical law that they're referring to about stoning literally says, if a man and woman commit adultery, the man and the woman are to be taken outside of the city gates, and both of them are to be stoned to death. But here we have these Pharisees only with one half of the the party. And that should tell us that there's something amiss. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that the Pharisees don't actually care about justice in this moment. That's not what they're after here. The Pharisees are upset that Jesus has a bigger following now than they do. More people are coming to hear Jesus speak than are coming to to hear the Pharisees speak. And they're jealous and they're upset. They also think that Jesus is preaching blasphemy, this big fancy word that he's preaching blasphemy. And so all the Pharisees are after is to get him to say something stupid that they can then accuse him of. They want to prove that Jesus is wrong and they're right. That's all they're after. And again, this is just a side observation about self-righteous people, which the Pharisees in this story are. Self-righteous people rarely actually care about what is right. They only care about being right. That's it. And so you have a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees who are interested in proving their point and they don't care what the cost is. So they say, what do you say? Verse six, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And then Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This is a powerful moment right here. I have no idea what Jesus is writing in the sand. Some scholars think he was writing the sins of all the people. I have no idea. It's fun to speculate, but here's what I do know. See, if I were God, and if I were Jesus, or I were in this moment, and somebody were trying to test me like this, I would want to have some sort of smart comeback. I'd want to pull out some quote or some Old Testament verse that I could throw back at the Pharisees and say, here, this is, that's what I would want to do. But only God... Only Jesus in this moment of incredible tensity decides I'm gonna sit on the ground and draw in the dirt. And you know what's happening here? Jesus has found a way to get every single eye in the crowd focused solely on him. All eyes are on Christ. Christ. A few minutes ago, everybody was staring at the, the woman. A few minutes ago, everybody was focused on the problem, the accused, and all of their attention was on that. Jesus, in this brilliant moment, sits and draws, and all eyes are on him, and everybody's focused on him. They have no idea what he's doing, but they're not taking their eyes off of him in this moment. And I'll tell you this, gang. I know this to be very true of me in my own life. What I focus on What I focus on influences an awful lot of what I believe and how I behave. What gets my attention and focus influences an awful lot what I believe and how I behave. I I think about like this last, political season or the last couple of election cycles. I used to be a news junkie and a political junkie. I would stay up till 2 a.m. when it was election season watching the TV for the results to see who won and who lost. And I started to realize the more I focused on those stories and the more I watched it, the grumpier I got, right? some chuckles because it's true. And the less my wife wanted to be around me, Because I was grumpy and it affected my behavior. Because what I focused on influenced what I was believing and how I was behaving. And church, I just I want to say this: I believe, I believe that this is our Jesus is writing in the dirt moment as a church, and He is asking us to solely focus on Him. Now, don't misunderstand anything I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that we just sort of shove everything to the side and it's been three weeks and the worship is really great and everything is fine now and good luck to everybody that's involved. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am saying is that in this moment, I think Christ is calling us to focus wholly on Him so that He frames our heart, He frames our thought, and that when we do respond to what's happening now or to any injustice that we see in the world, we have Him as our motivation for that response. He's calling us to focus on him. Gang, he's writing in the dirt for us. Verse seven. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So you have this group of unruly people standing around ready to stone this woman and Jesus says, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Do you you know what he's saying? Measure justice not by what you think she deserves, measure justice in this moment by what you think you deserve. Well, that'll change the way you see it, won't it? Look inward before you start casting stones outward. So he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And once more, he bent down and he rode on the ground. And if we were in the crowd that day, my guess is we would look around and there, I'm gonna guess that there would be a murmur that starts to build. Well, <clears throat> I can't cast the first stone because I mean, I cheated on my taxes last year, so I guess I'm out. I can't cast the first stone. I cussed my husband or wife out last week something fierce. I I can't do it. I lied to my parents. I, I can't cast the first stone. I started a nasty rumor at school, at work, at church. Verse nine. When they heard this, that statement from Jesus, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones and Jesus was left standing alone with the woman so one by one these people they are charged and ready to take this woman's life and one by one they drop their stones and you know what's happening in this moment one by one what people are doing is they're putting justice back into the hands of Jesus where it ultimately belongs That's where justice belongs. Do you know, gang, um, every time I have ever felt wronged or felt like someone has committed an injustice against me or a sin against me, I've done this far too many times in my life. I have tried to take justice in my own hands. And I'll get back and I'll make it right, and on and on and on I go. And you know what has happened? Almost every single time I've tried to take justice into my hands, I have ended up committing an injustice myself. And if we're not careful, we can take justice into our hands and just commit injustice after injustice after injustice. In my work, I've been a, I've been a ministry, I've been a pastor for 20 years. And because of our background, we've had the chance to spend a lot of time with divorced couples. And a lot of times, in those stories or in those moments, uh, one of the the husband or the wife, whoever we're talking to, will feel like the judgment of divorce was unjust. The judge was unfair right? I have to pay more, or the visitation time, or whatever the reason is. And I'm just telling you, I've sat in too many conversations with parents in that moment, where they say, but, but you know what? I'm, I'll make it right. I'm going to find a way to get back at my husband, or my ex-husband, or my ex-wife. And they take justice into their hands, and somehow they think that they're going to show their ex-spouse, give them a what for. And do you know what ends up happening every single time in that moment? And injustice is committed against who? The kids. Because when we take it into our own hands, because we are weak, we are sinful, we are broken, more than likely, we're probably gonna create an injustice. So here's what happens, they, they drop the rocks and they start to walk away. And essentially what's happening is people are starting to get honest with themselves. That's what happened in that crowd. And gang, when you listen to the voice of Jesus, when you invite his Holy Spirit, when you stop and focus on him, he is gonna force you to get honest with yourself. I'm convinced that's why lots of us don't pray or we don't read the Bible because we're afraid of what he's gonna say or ask us. He will force us to get honest with ourselves and that's what happens in the crowd. So everybody drops their rocks and they walk away. They put justice back into the hands of Jesus. And now, if you can imagine this moment, It's just the woman and Jesus surrounded by all the stones that were almost thrown at her. And just five minutes ago in the story, every stone that has now been dropped on the ground, five minutes ago, that stone had enough energy and power to take her life because those stones were filled with rage, they were filled with malice, they were filled with condemnation and judgment. And again, just minutes ago, they had the power to literally ruin this woman's life and take it. But now, every stone lays silent around them because that's what Jesus can do. He can silence rage. He can silence anger. He can silence malice. He can silence condemnation. He can silence judgment. And there's no power in any of those things when we focus on the person of Jesus Christ in our lives. He took it all away. And it's just her and him. Verse 10. So Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. And off she goes. Forgiven, free no condemnation I found this but, on the web. oh excellent thank you but here's a question what about justice does she just get off scot-free I mean she she and and the guy like they, they committed adultery they committed this Do we just let them go? I mean, is it just like forgiveness and freedom and there's no condemnation, which there is all of those things in the person of Jesus Christ. But this takes us right back to where we started. It takes us back to that throne and the foundation of God's throne. If God truly is a holy and righteous God and he's a just God, he cannot look away from unrighteousness and he cannot look away from unjust situations without doing something about it. Again, that's why you feel something. Imagine what it's like for God to look at injustice or injustice and unrighteousness in the world. He has to move and he has to act. But in this story, she just gets off Scot free. But see, here's the thing. We think that's the end of the story. In part because John just goes on to another one and another one and another one. This isn't the end of the story. So the question for us becomes, what does he do about the unrighteousness in the world and with this woman? What does he do about the unjust? This is what he does. This is what he does. Righteousness and justice meet on the cross. And that woman's debt is satisfied. And so is yours. Every unrighteous act you've ever committed, every unjust moment you have ever been a part of, all of it met on the cross, justice and righteousness. And justice and righteousness were satisfied in this moment. That's why Jesus could let her go scot-free because he knew the time was coming for him to pay the penalty. Not her, not me, not you, not us. This is from Romans chapter three. Paul writing to the church in Rome. This is the last verse I'm gonna share. This takes us right back to the verse from Psalms. Verse 23, for all have sinned. And the word all in the Greek, when you translate it to the English, it means all. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nobody in here perfect. We all know that. Sometimes we like to act like it, though. None of us are perfect, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, but we are justified We're made right. Our sin breaks our relationship with God. Our sin breaks our relationship with each other as well. But we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, substitution, by his blood to be received By faith, In other words, when you and I believe that Christ went to the cross for us and that he poured out all of his blood for us to make us right with God and to make the world just again, when we believe that by faith, we're made right with God. And it is by his grace, through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Verse 26, jump down to 26. And why did he do all this? Why did he do this? Here it is. It was to show his righteousness. He can't let what's wrong go. He cannot. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He made it right, and he was the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us this morning, gang? I think it means a couple of things. One, it means that retributive justice has been taken care of. That the retribution we deserved has been taken care of. And if that's the case for all of us, then the season that we find ourselves in as a church, I think it means that what he's asking us, what God, what the Holy Spirit, what the Son of God is asking us is that we would pursue restorative justice that we would seek to bring about restoration, that we would seek to bring about healing and redemption, not just in this church, but in our communities as well. So for a moment, just, just imagine, gang, imagine what happens when the church, when this church. Imagine what happens when the church stays desperate for the Holy Spirit and you never lose that desperation. Imagine what happens when you and I, we go home and we get on our knees and we pray, we pray for our church, we pray for our families, we pray for our homes, we pray for our community. Imagine what happens when we surrender to the Holy Spirit and the will of God and we say, God, you do what you want in this church. Imagine what happens when we start praying for restoration, not just here, but in our homes, but also in our community. Gang, I'm telling you that the best days of this church are ahead of us, and I don't believe that just because I walk around here with Pollyannish rose-colored glasses on. I believe that because the church has never belonged to me, it's never belonged to the board, it's never belonged to anybody. It has always been the bride of Christ, and the idea that somehow that Jesus is gonna let his bride, this church, languish into the future as some average church is ridiculous. He wants to see this church move into the absolute best days and that takes us surrendering ourselves and letting restorative justice come into our midst that's what we're after imagine what happens when we do that as a church i'm going to pray for us and the worship team's going to come out and they're going to sing um, they're going to sing one of my favorite songs king of kings I got to tell you, it's really hard to find a a good worship song about justice. But this song is actually perfect because it points us to the cross. And in the same way that those people were focused on Jesus, church, we've got to focus on the person of Christ. Let him inform our thoughts and let him inform our hearts. So as we sing this song, may our focus be on the cross, may it it be on the place where righteousness and justice were finally met. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that you cannot look away from what is wrong in the world. Thank you for the fact that you will not look away from injustice. Even though we still see it and it's still here, we know it, but we know that it has been taken care of on the cross and one day you will make it all right. God, I I pray that we will cling to the cross, that we will be desperate for the Holy Spirit as a church and that you will continue to pour your spirit out into us and on this church that we can bring restoration and redemption and healing here, but also to the community of Allendale and beyond. So God, give us wisdom. Help us to bring about restorative justice. Thank you for the cross, God. Thank you for sending yourself there so we didn't have to I pray for all of these things in the name of the King of Kings, amen.